Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name is John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired Baltimore police sergeant. In most episodes of the Law Enforcement Today radio show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about issues that affect law enforcement officers, both active and retired, their families, friends, and supporters. We'll also be discussing incidents in the news from the perspective of those in law enforcement. Visit our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, and be sure to like and follow us on Facebook. Search for Law Enforcement Today. This episode of Law Enforcement Today brought to you by Galls.com. We're thrilled to have them on board, sponsoring episodes of our podcast and radio show, sponsoring our app. And they've been in business for 50 years, 50 years serving first responders and law enforcement community. They're industry leaders. They've got a huge online catalog, everything you could ever want. Galls.com. Check them out. Their catalog is spectacular. Everything from like a retired guy like me to active guy like Robert, men, women, they've got everything you could ever need between tactical gear, clothing, footwear, badges, handcuff keys. They got everything. Also be sure to check them out on Facebook and Instagram. In the studio by myself today, or I should say, in the studio, Robert Greenberg got called out on official police business, which, by the way, me being retired police never happens, so I'm, I, nice. I'm so glad. Yeah, Robert is uh, doing his official duties and, and joining us on the phone. Uh, I, I'm so thrilled to have you as a guest, Michelle McPhee. I, I'm going to let you give a little bit of your resume. I just got done reading a news article you, you had written in Newsweek. You're an accomplished investigative journalist. You're also an accomplished author and a rare commodity nowadays, almost as rare as dinosaur sightings or Bigfoot evidence, is someone in the news media that actually is fair and balanced when it comes to the reporting of police and police incidents. It's amazing. Thanks it, for joining it is us. somewhat. I think it's it's a dying breed. Thank you for having me. You know, you have journalists who actually understand and cover police and support what police do every day. It really is um, It's surprising to me, as you know, just to see how many people never leave their desk but are so critical of police. It is amazing. Well, it's nice to be on the show. I'm a big fan. Thank you very much. And it, it's amazing to me that, uh, you know, I, and I'm not naive, working in, in radio for 15 years now after retiring from police work, I understand the concept. You have to get eyeballs. You have to get ears on your story. I understand all that. But I also understand... Trying to be factual, at least somewhat, in your reporting without being too biased and, and framing a story should be equally as important, and that seems to be not the case nowadays. I completely agree. I mean, it, you know, I think investigative journalism especially, and, and, you know, every time you're covering anything law enforcement related, you're investigating. You're investigating the crime. You're investigating the response to the crime. You know, this this is something that requires, number one, an open mind, and number two, actually leaving the office, which I think is one of the major obstacles that a lot of these reporters face. They just don't leave. They don't know enough. And when I started out in the business, I started as the police bureau chief of the New York Daily News. I, I turned right out of one police plaza in, in lower Manhattan. So we literally lived at the beat. You know, you worked with police. You went to police times. You understood what they gave up. You, you I think, had a, a different perspective when you're up close and personal with all of the sacrifices that our law enforcement makes. 
and you remind me of when I was a young officer that we actually had working relationships with a lot of the Baltimore Sun newspaper reporters with the local television which reporters. is why we have some of the best television is from the Baltimore Sun reporters you know the wire it's and yeah. homicide life on the streets they actually took time to get to know the people they didn't engage in just outright if it bleeds, it leads the, the most glorious headlines possible to make police look the worst and then have the facts hidden in the bottom of the story that actually support and exonerate the police, knowing that people never read that far. Well, exactly. Yeah, just like the correction. So, you know, it's, it's the best beat in the world, but you really do have to see it from all angles. You have to actually work. And, you know, one thing I just say, too, is I tell young people this all the time. You are a throwback to an era where we actually had a thing called investigative journalists. If we had to rely on what passes for investigative journalism nowadays, Watergate never would have been discovered or reported. So many things were kept in a secret in the dark would have stayed there. You were actually, and I, I say this with pride, you're actually old school. Oh, thank you. And I take that as a complete compliment. And I am old school. You know, even a day like today, I think, the, you know, the headline should all be about this idea. And I'm very supportive of all law enforcement, federal and local. However, you, if, if a police officer ever, ever lost job-related or crime-related emails or text messages or evidence, there would be an outcry. But, you know, in the context of today, and we're, we're barely covering this, you know, we have this investigation into Russia. But when you see corruption at the highest levels of the FBI, it, it certainly, I think, merits some deeper digging but you don't see that happening very often do you no and i could tell you if if i had lost crucial evidence in any kind of case just as a rookie beat patrolman the headlines would have automatically been skewed that there was corruption and foul play and theft and and everything else and when we have like the story with the fbi i think referring to losing all this information it's like yeah, 50,000 text messages yeah, it's impossible. First, I mean, we—I think you and I both know that anybody who is irresponsible enough to use their job phone to correspond in this kind of a way is not too bright, anyhow, and maybe a little bit arrogant. Yeah. But the fact that that the FBI can't find fifty thousand text messages from a cell phone when we have forensic evidence that specializes in lifting these sort of text messages is just absurd. It boggles the mind, and what really baffles me is the lack of reporting about it it's just accepted as okay they just lost 50,000 emails or 50,000 text or a server was hidden uh, or was lost or was smashed that kind of stuff if you try to tell me that as a policeman I didn't buy it well, and if you were a policeman and tried to get away with that it never would happen oh no you know and that's another point you brought up which I'm glad you did you know, I am very, very pro-police, very pro-law enforcement, having done the job. And that's what we try to talk about in this show. However, when there are incidents where the officers are criminal in behavior or corrupt, I have no sympathy. And uh, we hold each other to a really, really high standard. And we all tend to demand the best. People seem to think that there's some secret blue line wall that, that says, oh, I'll never, ever, you know, say anything against someone when no one wants to be in the job next to someone who's just outright a criminal. No one does. Right. Well, when you when there's something that's um, inappropriate or dirty or corrupt, it just tarnishes the badge for people who work so hard. 
So those people, I think, you know, nobody wants you right. Nobody wants to be on on in a car next to them or be on a line next to them. There's, there's no way. No. And, and if you've been covering police for a long time, another truth is that we were taught by the old timers and, and not not always gently. You know, as a rookie officer, when I made mistakes, I got a scolding, a talking to. I got disciplined. You know, I was taught the right way to do things. What was the wrong way that would never be accepted? Yeah, it wasn't some secret society where we just turned uh, uh, an eye to inappropriate behavior. That just really uh, is far overblown in the media and i don't want to paint everybody in the media with a broad brush of being horrible because you're you're a classic example of those out there really working hard to do a good job and you're successful at it too when people say that can't be done well thank you i think it's a a dying art but it's nice to be part of it at the in the good old days like you talked about in baltimore it was great to be part of this it was a, a family. You were part of a, a culture almost, and I think it was a great privilege and an honor to be able to cover crime in this sort of a way. And then, of course, that emerged later into terrorism. And that this has is the job really... of every cop in the country right now. Yeah, it, that has changed the scope of everything. And I was retired well before all that. The job they do now it has changed dramatically. The basics of it is the same, but just a lot more encompassing, a lot more responsibility, and truly the first line of defense. But before we get into some of the stories, uh, especially your most recent Newsweek article, you're also an accomplished author. Would you tell us about some of the books you have written in your career? So I started my career as, a, as an intern at the Boston Globe, and that was back when you actually did have internships, and you followed reporters around like a puppy, and you, and you learned from the best in the business. And uh, from the Boston Globe, I went on to the New York Daily News. And I mentioned I worked right out of One Police Plaza. I was the first female to be the police bureau chief. And we covered cops and crime extensively. And one of my very first book was a book called Mob Over Miami. And it was about this bubblegum gangster, as they called them. And anybody in the NYPD or anyone who works Staten Island or Brooklyn, where I covered the mob extensively, they remember these bubblegum gangsters who formed these little crews, and one of these guys was named Chris Pacciello. Well, uh, when Gianni Versace was killed, and it's funny because that's a big show right now, mm-hmm. but when Gianni Versace was killed, the Daily News sent me down to South Beach. And Andrew Cannon, gay street killer that got chased around by the Miami Beach cops for so long, he was the suspect in the murder, obviously, of, of Gianni Versace and multiple other prominent men. Well, Andrew Cannon had been partying at a nightclub in South Beach, and I interviewed the owner of that nightclub, who turned out to be a guy named Chris Pacciello. So when four years later, when this federal indictment crosses my desk at 1PP, and the name Chris Pacciello, a.k.a. the binger, because he liked to binge on crime, crossed my desk, if the name seemed familiar enough that I went back and looked at my notes, and sure enough, not only did the name match, but the date of birth also, the DOB's match, and sure enough, you know, this nightclub owner in South Beach was the same gangster that had been on the lam who were murdering a housewife in her home back in the late 1990s. So that story became a Maxim Magazine article. First, I covered it for the Daily News. Then I wrote it for Maxim Magazine, the king of South Beach. And I got a call from a literary agent who said, why don't you write a book proposal on this? This could be a great book. I had no idea how to write a book proposal. So I went to the bookstore, bought a book called How to Write a Book Proposal, stayed up all night, and that was my first book deal. That's crazy. So my first book was about the mafia. 
That's great. We're going to return to that conversation in a few moments. Folks, we were talking about Michelle McPhee, investigative journalist, accomplished crime author, and uh, just got a recent article in Newsweek magazine that is mind-blowing stuff. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Public safety professionals are regular people that heroically rush forward. Despite the fire or the storm, despite the worst of society and the undeserved contempt, they rush in to save, to protect, to hold our nation together. For more than 50 years, Galls has stood with our troops stationed abroad and with our nation's first responders who serve us here at home every day. Galls, proud to serve America's public safety professionals. Visit Galls.com today. If you are current or previous law enforcement, firefighter, or military and are considering buying or selling real estate, contact Honor the Brave. Honor the Brave is a nationwide real estate program that allows these families to keep more of their hard-earned money. 10% of the agent's commission goes back to you. Additionally, they donate 5% of the commission to the nonprofit of your choice. Current or previous law enforcement, firefighter, or military considering buying or selling real estate, contact Honor the Brave online at honorthebrave.com. Do you need a car? Been shopping only to be turned down because of bad credit, low credit, no credit, bankruptcy, or divorce? Guess what? Today's your lucky day. Because now you can buy a car, truck, or SUV, just about any vehicle. It's true. Bad credit doesn't matter. No credit doesn't matter. Bankruptcy or divorce, it just doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, your job is your ticket to your new vehicle. We're Auto Credit Express, and we've helped thousands of people just like you. Antonio H. told us, great company, got me connected, and the day I went in, I drove off in the car I wanted. 100% worth your time. Need a car? Get started now and drive off as early as today. Just go to 3ignoremyscore.com right now. That's www.the3ignoremyscore.com. Auto financing the easy way. 3ignoremyscore.com. Get started today. Auto financing the easy way. back talking with michelle mcphee investigative journalist of the truest sense crime author very well established and michelle your first book was about the mafia and it amazes me that you had to get a book on how to write a book even though you were a journalist for a long time which that's a great story did you encounter any retaliation any threats any pushback from organized crime groups when you're reporting and writing the book you know, it was funny. It was interesting because after a while, initially, I did not want to cover the mob because one of the reasons I left Boston is I had written a big story as a college student called The State Tips Massacre, and it was about these wise guys that shot each other up at a 99 restaurant during a crowded lunch break. The problem was I didn't really have the anonymity of being a reporter then. I was really just a college kid who paid my way through UMass Boston working at an, a mobbed-up coffee shop called Cafe Roma. So when the story came out, people got mad. And I got threatened at gunpoint in the middle of Hanover Street in Boston's Little Italy. So, obviously, I was a young kid. I didn't know as many cops as I do now. I was terrified. <laughs> and I said, maybe now's a good time to get out of town. Ironically, that story got the attention of the editor of the Daily News, and that's how I broke into the business. No so, kidding. when I first moved to New York, I was like, oh, yeah, that was, it was the biggest break and the scariest thing that ever happened to me. 
But when I moved to New York, I'm like, all right, that's it. Not writing about the mafia anymore. I'm done with the organized crime beat. And my very first day working the midnight shift at the Daily News, Junior Gotti got arrested with a trunk full of horse tranquilizers. And we can only imagine what he was doing with them. So my very first story on my very first day was writing about John Gotti Jr. And that kind of launched my career covering the mob. So I had friends and sources on both sides because I was fair. Uh-huh. So that's when I first started writing about the mob, I was nervous about it. But then I lived in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I lived amongst the people that I was covering. There were tons of cops living in that neighborhood. It was a, it was a, a cop and crook type of, of almost like Copland, like that old movie right. was Staten Island in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And I lived in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. So okay. I, I got a little bit of retaliatory, but I also had, a, you know, I think I had built up enough trust with people on both sides of these stories that I think, uh, you know, I, I could be put on to make sure that both sides of the story were being told. That's an amazing story, and I think it really clearly illustrates the example that truth is stranger than fiction. How, what are the odds that that would be your first story? And you're <laughs> like, I don't want to touch that. I don't want to deal like, with no. that. I was like, no. Yeah, exactly. And uh, then, you know, it was uh, it was a, it was a lot of, I mean, first of all, New York City, the NYPD, that's pretty much all they did up until 9-11 was, you know, big organized crime cases, big gang cases, fugitive cases. So, you know, I really, I really learned a lot working out of one PP. That was great experience. About I'm the sure. job. And good, it was an unbelievable experience. We had the lucky. pleasure of interviewing Ralph Friedman, uh, star of the television show Street Justice of Bronx uh, at Fort Apache and all that. Just a little bit before my time in Baltimore, but I remember going to visit family members in New York and uh, Northern Jersey in the 70s and 80s. And they've done a phenomenal job of cleaning up the really rough and tumble. It was a wild, wild west in many parts of that city for a long time. And the, the police there have done an incredible job of cleaning up that city. They really have. It's unreal. And the crime keeps going down and down and down. And that's all because of the hard work of those cops. And they're among the lowest paid in the country, too. So they, you know, they really are dedicated to the job and, and to make it a rest. So it was an incredible place to, to get good experience. So your second book, what was that about? My second book was called When Evil Rules, and it was about this trash guy in Massachusetts who had killed his first wife and probably his second and third wife, too. Uh, and he was a big fan of Vinny the Chin Gigante, the mm-hmm. monster who used to wander around Greenwich Village with his bathrobe. Right, acting like so he was guy, unstable, that guy, yeah. Yeah, he acted like he was um, mentally ill, to avoid, and it worked for a long time. He avoided, you know... Um, any sort of federal prosecution till the very end, and he would die in prison. But this wacko from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, in Falmouth, who, you know, absolutely murdered, murdered his first wife, and then his second two wives also died mysteriously. I wrote a book about this guy, and he managed to pull the same deal where he pretended to be crazy and got locked up in a mental institution for the rest of his life. That was one evil rules. And then I wrote a book about the Craigslist killer, which turned into a movie on Lifetime, and I wrote a book about a woman who went on a murderous rampage at the University of Alabama called The Professor's Rage. And my last book was about the Boston Marathon bombings, which brings us to the Newsweek story. Yeah, and we'll cover that when we come back after a break because it's, it's a long news article, but there's, there is so much information in there that, that piqued my interest. Uh, I don't want to get in a conversation and start it and then have to interrupt in a few moments. 
So let's backtrack a little bit. Yeah, but that, but there is a little bit about um, about Daniel Morley, the Newsweek article, uh, the person at the center of that article, and Maxim Harm, which is the last book. Okay. How, so you've got how many books? Is it five? Six. Six. Man. And it's none of it is what you call light uh, fantasy reading. All of it is heavy-duty, hard-hitting stuff. Yeah, it's not romance novels. <laughs> That's for sure. I, I was going to say something really smart, Alki, about, you know, your idea of romance and others probably are on totally different pages, but uh, that that's... This is that's very true, I know. <laughs> yeah, working in this environment tends to change our outlook. You've met a lot of police over the years working in investigative journalism. What would you say was probably one of your most amazing stories of a law enforcement officer you dealt with or met? Oh, there's so many. That's a tough one. But, you know, obviously, uh, I was friends with with Moira Smith, who was one of the 23 NYPD officers who would perish in the towers, along with 37 Port Authority police officers, 343 firefighters, and let's be forget is a term that actually means something to me. But Moira, and I'm still friends with her husband, Jim, who was also an NYPD cop, uh, she was photographed leading a bloody, dazed Cantor Fitzgerald stockbroker out of the towers. And, you know, she has this comforting hand on his arm. And one of my colleagues at the Daily News snapped a picture of her. And this guy's all bloodied. And she leads him to safety. And she goes back in and never comes back out. Wow. And all they recovered of Moira was her tattered tin, her badge. Um, and she was an amazing woman, an amazing cop, and the only female officer to die on 9-11. But she, her story is one of so many of the heroics that you see. I mean, listen, you know, terrorism changes your perspective on everything. And as horrible as these events are, and they're truly unimaginably, unspeakably grotesque, you know, the response of our, of our civil servants is just unmatched unmatched and I saw it on 9-11 with the response of cops and firefighters and I saw it on April 15th on Boylston Street in Boston so there were just so many stories of people who did extraordinary things you know and we, and we know so many of them I mean what jumps to mind for the marathon is a cop named Tommy Barrett who was in a total daze you know the bombs went off it looked like Baghdad on Boylston Street in Boston He's looking around trying to save the lives of these people who were screaming in agony. Seventeen victims became the amputees that day. And there's a photo of Tommy Barrett with a little baby named Leo Wolfenden bundled to his chest like a football, and he saved that kid's life. And there are, you know, at least a dozen stories like it that took place on April 15th on, on Marathon Monday, just like on 9-11. And those stories are, are forefront. But even the dedication of, like, a cold case detective that... Mm-hmm. You know, spend 20 years trying to track down a guy who hijacked a plane or my friend, you know, Inspector Charlie Wells, who saved the life of a woman who had a knife pressed to her throat by an EDP, an emotionally disturbed person, and literally took a shot and got that guy right between the eyes as he had the knife pressed to her throat. And that guy was legendary. You know, he was the one that disarmed the FALM bombs that were hidden in Kentucky fried chicken containers out in front of one police plaza. That's so amazing. There's a, there's a bazillion stories. There are, and we're going to return in just a few moments. We're going to talk more with Michelle McPhee. Uh, if you're not familiar with Michelle's work, she's an accomplished author, investigative journalist, and she's got a really, really eye-opening article that was just recently published in Newsweek. We're going to take a short break. This is Law Enforcement Today. We'll be right back. 
As a small business owner, there's one word that you absolutely dread, payroll. For small businesses, it's a big burden. You may think you're saving time and money doing it yourself. But come on, are you? Timesheets, processing checks, calculating taxes, a total waste of your time. Paychecks simplifies payroll processing, saving you time and money. Submit your payroll online, fax it in, or call your dedicated Paychecks payroll specialist. And you're done! Learn more at trypaychecks.com. Come on, do the math. The IRS dishes out 8 million penalties a year. Make one mistake and you're on the hook. On average, you're losing nearly one business day every month doing payroll. That's time and money you'll never get back, unless you get paychecks. More than half a million small businesses already do. Call 877-375-3164. Trade payroll pressure for peace of mind. Call now, 877-375-3164. That's 877-375-3164. I'm probably okay to have one more drink before I drive home. I'm probably okay. I open the window to stay alert. Probably okay. I just popped some gum in my mouth. Step out of the car, please. I probably made a mistake. Probably okay isn't okay when it comes to drinking and driving. If you see a warning sign, stop and call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Public safety professionals are regular people that heroically rush forward. Despite the fire or the storm, despite the worst of society and the undeserved contempt, they rush in to save, to protect, to hold our nation together. For more than 50 years, Galls has stood with our troops stationed abroad and with our nation's first responders who serve us here at home every day. Galls, proud to serve America's public safety professionals. Visit Galls.com today. Back to the conversation on law enforcement today with our guest, Michelle McPhee, investigative journalist, accomplished author. Uh, Michelle, uh, thanks for taking time to join us. I understand you're on vacation, getting a little bit of a break from wintertime and the hustle and bustle of the big city and getting a little break from work, right? Are you promising you're not doing any work other than this interview? I, I mean, that's impossible. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm sitting here in paradise writing about MS-13 and and their takeover of Boston with the unaccompanied minors that are all over the place. So, yes, I'm writing about MS-13 in paradise, so it's not too bad of a work day. <laughs> that's not uplifting stuff on the beach in uh, some tropical location. You're supposed to be sipping on a frozen drink with an umbrella in it with your feet up. And so my, my poor friends are with me. are like, oh, do we have to hear another machete attack story? Please don't. <laughs> that is incredible. We're going to talk about your article. It's in Newsweek. It was published, I believe, it was January 11th, 2018. The title is Whoever Built the Boston Marathon Bombs is Still on Loose Again, Able to Kill Again. Uh, let's go over this story because it is a long story, but you're the one who broke it. Where do you want to start? Well, I think, you know, when I started investigating my book, Maximum Harm, um, one, of the, one of the major, major glaring things that came out of the trial of Joe Cars and I have was the idea that the FBI said in court records, on the stand, and since then, federal prosecutors and the FBI have said that the Zanai brothers did not build the bombs. 
So I think for people like you and I and people listening to the show, well, then who did? And why aren't we looking for them? Because that's terrifying. Think about it. These two brothers, these lowlifes, were able to detonate two weapons of mass destruction at a crowded, iconic event in Boston. They killed a little boy named Martin Richard and two young women, Lindsay Liu and Crystal Marie Campbell. I talked about the 17 people who were left amputees. Four of those people had double amputees. And then there was another 260 people made. So when you think about the destruction that those bombs caused, and you listen to federal prosecutors and the FBI say they never found the bomb-making facility, and they don't believe that Susan I brothers had the skills to actually make those bombs, then it seems terrifying to me that I am still living somewhere in Massachusetts with people who have the capacity to build those kind of weapons. It is. So I started to take a look at it. It's kind of a very frightening thought that the person who built the bombs is still among us. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think I'm pretty good at staying on top of what's going on, especially with you know major crime stories across the United States. I've never, until I read that article, I never had an inkling or ever heard any reports that they didn't think that the, I can't pronounce the names, the Sar- Sarnayev brothers built the bombs. They thought someone else did. Was that, like, not well, reported exactly very much? Why, I mean, think about the international press that covered that trial, and nobody picked up on that. Why not? That's like a huge red flag. Uh, I just, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's inexplicable to me because it's in writing. It's, it was in the testimony. But I think that, you know, people in Boston wanted to celebrate. One brother was dead. The second brother was going to be sentenced to death. Case closed. Everyone's going to celebrate. But then people forget about the murder of Sean Collier. Right. And an MIT police officer executed in cold blood, you know, three days after the marathon attack. Well, that, I think, was worthy of investigation. And right away, and I think, Jay, you and I know, and people listening know, that right away there was some inconsistencies in the story that started right away that raised an eyebrow to anyone who pays attention. For example, when Sean Collier was killed, there was a lot of talk about a 7-Eleven robbery. And they thought that his killers were connected to a nearby 7-Eleven robbery. Well, at first, they, the robbers were the bombers, and they weren't the bombers, and then there was so much confusion around that story that it made me suspicious. So I kept a pretty close eye on the 7-Eleven robbery, and I asked for all of the reports, and I eventually got a video of the robbery, and right away, I see this guy in this video that looks suspiciously like a man who had been arrested at his mother's house in Topsfield, Massachusetts, on June 9th, 2013, 55 days after the marathon bombing. And what struck me as odd is you might see one or two stories about this guy's arrest. But Daniel Morley attacked his mother, held her down in a chair, told her to burn in hell, wrote on her face with a Sharpie, set her glasses ablaze, jumped on her companion, her male companion, attacked him. They both had to crawl out of the window to escape this guy. He's six foot four, 240 pounds, giant, big, massive man attacking his elderly mother and her elderly companion. Well, police go in. They get a consent to search the house, um, the owner, and they find a bomb-making facility. And it wasn't just all of the bomb-making materials that this man, Daniel Morley, had in his house. He had signatures, as they would be described by the bomb technicians, right. of the marathon bomb. He had ball bearings. He had the same green circuit boards. He had the same make and model batteries that were used in the initiators for the devices. And he also had an empty box top to a six-quart or pressure cooker, the exact size and brand used at the marathon. That's what you would call evidence. I, I, I've never investigated bombings, but watching the story about the Ted Kaczynski Unabomber case, that's part of how they built the case, that, that when they did a search and seizure warrant on his cabin, they found 
these signature items that match what were used in other bombs. So again, why is this not reported? I never heard of this guy until I read your report many years later. Well, exactly. So I've been chasing this guy around. And what was, what was odd, he gets arrested in June of 2013. He has never formally arraigned in a court. His appearance was waived. He was charged with obviously abusing his mom and with, the, with having, in Massachusetts, there was recently a, a, a bill passed called the Bomb Component Law. He had every single component to make these to make weapons of mass destruction. He had a recipe for thermite, which is a bomb accelerant in a notebook. He had these empty whipped cream cans or hides that they were often used for a thermite can propelled like IEDs. So this guy had an arsenal. He had a, he had a complete arsenal of bomb making materials in his bedroom. And he gets arrested and very quietly Less than a year later, the district attorney now processes the entire case, so it declines to press any charges against him at all. He has a 9mm, the same type of gun that was used to kill Sean Collier, and ironically, the same gun that was used in the 7-Eleven robbery. He had a Russian rifle. He had hundreds of rounds of ammunition, and the entire case gets dropped, now processed. When I asked the district attorney why, the spokesperson told me to call the FBI. What? The FBI did not cooperate with local law enforcement, but instead picked up all of the evidence that they had collected out of Daniel Morley's room and then just returned it saying, eh, no, we didn't find anything. So somebody helps this case, this kid's case, go away. You've read the story, Jay. You don't know. They, no one's denied a thing. That's... So it's not like the U.S. attorney has come out and said, oh, that story is full of inaccuracies. They can't because I have every report. Everything that I've reported on in Newsweek and in the book Maximum Harm is in writing. I have all the reports. I have the NELPRA sheet. I've interviewed people who have identified, several people who have identified Daniel Morley as a 7-Eleven robber, including a member of his own family, and the Cambridge police, where that robbery took place, haven't even interviewed him, according to his own attorney. When I asked Daniel Morley's attorney why he stockpiled all of these lawmaking materials before the marathon, his response was he didn't remember because he had had a delusional breakdown. Now, does this strike you as credible in any way? No. No. The explanations don't strike me as credible or believable, or uh, the fact that something is null-prost when there's a preponderance of evidence, I hate to say, is something we've been used to. I I personally was used to it nonstop in Baltimore, and that's still going on. But when there's And what what does it usually indicate to you, that someone's a rat cooperating or somebody is... Bingo. Information. Bingo, right there. Bingo. That's usually it. And the other one is a, a total ineptitude or lack of caring by uh, the state's attorney's office. And uh, generally what they do is they'll blame the police. They'll say, ah, you didn't bring me a strong enough case. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but the criminals didn't pause and say, hey, officer, how, how can I give you the best case possible? You, you do the best with what you've got in front of you. And this case sounds like there was a lot in front of them that they just ignored including his mother's own statement so that you know the detective interviewed the mother saying hey why do you think you get out of meltdown and she said he's been very dark since the boston marathon he was friends with tamil and Zanayev, and he made a cryptic statement to her saying i've done something i'm gonna have to answer to god for oh man so the statements alone require a second look yeah friends with tamil and Zanayev, they were both ardent mixed martial artists and he had done something we'd have to answer to God for. The companion, David Bloss, who owned the house, piped up and said that he was so concerned about Daniel Morley's 
actions and locking himself in the room and all these materials. When the bombs went off on Marathon Monday, he turned to his girlfriend and said, where is your son? This is in a police report. So this kid's own family thought that he might have had something to do with the bombing. And then, the shock of shock, you know, he's got this 24-quart pressure cooker next to a bag of perlite, which is a mom-making material, hidden under dirty clothes in his closet. Next to the pressure cooker, this massive pressure cooker, was a duffel bag that the pressure cooker fit into, and inside the duffel bag were gloves, consistent with the ones that criminals use to not leave behind fingerprints. I believe you have photos of that in this article. Yes, I do. Listen, you're a cop. When you look at this evidence, it is impossible to believe that this guy got a complete pass. And let me remind you, I have tried extensively to interview, tried many, many times to interview Daniel Morley, and he's not denying it either. So no one is denying the contents of the article, not the FBI, not federal prosecutors, U.S. Attorney's Office, and not Daniel Morley. What I can't figure out is what he could be possibly cooperating about that would be more important than the marathon. That's exactly what I was going to ask next. We're going to talk about that in just a few moments. We're going to take a short break. This is Law Enforcement Today. We'll be right back. Do you need a car? Been shopping only to be turned down because of bad credit, low credit, no credit, bankruptcy, or divorce? Guess what? Today's your lucky day. Because now, you can buy a car, truck, or SUV, just about any vehicle. It's true. Bad credit doesn't matter. No credit doesn't matter. Bankruptcy or divorce, it just doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, your job is your ticket to your new vehicle. We're Auto Credit Express, and we've helped thousands of people just like you. Antonio H. told us, great company, got me connected, and the day I went in, I drove off in the car I wanted. 100% worth your time. Need a car? Get started now and drive off as early as today. Just go to 3ignoremyscore.com right now. That's www.the3ignoremyscore.com. Auto financing the easy way. 3ignoremyscore.com. Get started today. Auto financing the easy way. If you are current or previous law enforcement, firefighter, or military and are considering buying or selling real estate, contact Honor the Brave. Honor the Brave is a nationwide real estate program that allows these families to keep more of their hard-earned money. 10% of the agent's commission goes back to you. Additionally, they donate 5% of the commission to the nonprofit of your choice. Current or previous law enforcement, firefighter, or military considering buying or selling real estate, contact Honor the Brave online at honorthebrave.com. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. You've messed up your daughter's haircut. Do you, A, get spiritual? Mom, where's the mirror? Beauty is within. Oh. B, find the positives. Less time blow drying, more time texting. Or C, show empathy. Mom, you really don't have twinsies. I kind of love it. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on adoption, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Public safety professionals are regular people that heroically rush forward. Despite the fire or the storm, despite the worst of society and the undeserved contempt, they rush in to save, to protect, to hold our nation together. For more than 50 years, Galls has stood with our troops stationed abroad and with our nation's first responders who serve us here at home every day. Galls, proud to serve America's public safety professionals. Visit Galls.com today. As a small business owner, there's one word that you absolutely dread. Payroll. For small businesses, it's a big burden. You may think you're saving time and money doing it yourself. 
But come on, are you? Timesheets, processing checks, calculating taxes, a total waste of your time. Paychex simplifies payroll processing, saving you time and money. Submit your payroll online, fax it in, or call your dedicated Paychex payroll specialist. And you're done! Learn more at trypaychex.com. Come on, do the math. The IRS dishes out 8 million penalties a year. Make one mistake and you're on the hook. On average, you're losing nearly one business day every month doing payroll. That's time and money you'll never get back, unless you get paychecks. More than half a million small businesses already do. Call 877-375-3164. Trade payroll pressure for peace of mind. Call now, 877-375-3164. That's 877-375-3164. Keyboard Cat, Hamilton the Pug, and Toast Meets World. These are some of the Internet's most beloved pets. And they all have one thing in common. Their stories started in a shelter. Start your story. Adopt a dog or cat today. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. Training that pet to play the keyboard, that's optional. Start a story. Adopt a shelter or rescue pet today. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. We're returning to this incredible conversation, riveting conversation on law enforcement today with Michelle McPhee, investigative journalist, very accomplished, award-winning crime author. We're talking about this case, the Boston bombing, the bomb maker still being out there on the loose, and your news article posted in Newsweek. I saw the photos, I read the article, and I'll be honest with you, it feels like you know how you have these television shows and movies where it's a bad script with, you know, secret plots from government agencies and everything else? My first thought is that that's what this feels like, but there's too much real evidence. Except that I have it all in writing. <laughs> that's the thing. There's too much real evidence that, that contradicts it, says this is for real. And I, for one, can't understand why. And what's really astonishing to me is that Sean Colley was murdered, and it was very likely that Daniel Morley was in the vicinity of Sean Colley's murder. You know, during the trial, and I was there for every single solitary day of um, Joe Carson and I have trial, and during the trial, we get to the testimony about Sean Colley's murder, and this assassination took place on the campus of MIT. There are cameras every five feet. In fact, some of my sources gave me still photos of the Sean Colley crime scene taken from a camera right over his cruiser where he was ambushed and executed. But for some inexplicable reason, federal prosecutors showed a video of two figures, and that's exactly how the U.S. attorney referred to the men that approached Collier's vehicle, two figures that walked across the campus and over to the cruiser and assassinated Sean Collier. Now, you saw in the article, one of the major questions is, Daniel Morley worked at the lab for a long time, that was not far from where Sean Collier was executed. And one of the items that police recovered at his bedroom in Topsfield was a locker key for a locker on that campus in that building where Sean Collier was executed. So doesn't it raise a question, at least for people who are investigators, yeah. well, what were the brothers doing at MIT in the first place? And that, that ridiculous story that the FBI told us that they were trying to get a second gun, that was an afterthought. That was a clear afterthought to all of my sources who responded to Collier's murder. There's a video that shows them having a conversation at the rear of a cruiser and then going back for the gun, which they never got. So this, this absurd story they were trying to float, that the Zanayevs went to MIT just to get a gun from some cop sitting there, is ridiculous. 
So what were they doing there? Why yeah. were they at MIT? Well, I would suggest that maybe Daniel Morley, the, the lab employee, was making that thermite he had the recipe for in the lab where he was an employee, and he stashed it in the locker that he still had a locker key for. And that's why they went to MIT to get the thermite for the bombs that they were going allegedly go to New York with, but instead they end up throwing a cop some water down. I do remember that. I remember watching them try the manhunt. Uh, just it was I was riveted to the edge of my seat. The police that that were there did a phenomenal job, and they finally captured the, the one brother was left. It just this is like out of an unbelievable Hollywood movie, but it's all too frighteningly real. All too frighteningly real. And again, you know, I was there on nine eleven, and I'm somebody who actually read the nine eleven commission report. And I read the follow-up report, 9-11 and terrorism travel. And it is abundantly clear to me that there was a reason that, you know, there are all these unanswered questions that remain about the Boston Marathon bombers. And my book shows that Tamlin Zanayev was an asset working for the Fed. And he had been promised citizenship. And when he didn't get it, he got mad and he got even with those bombs. And you have to ask some questions, real questions about Daniel Morley. We've seen over and over and over again in these sorts of prosecutions that, you know, you have a cooperating witness who provides the materials to a budding jihadi, and then, you know, the feds sweep in and save the day and arrest anybody before anything can happen. Well, there are some, you know, some of my sources believe that Daniel Morley was that guy, that he was a guy that was providing the materials to the Zanaya brothers. The Zanaya brothers were talking over and over about targeting the Esplanade for the 4th of July in Boston, and instead, months earlier, on April 15th, they hit Marathon Monday. Are we ever going to get the real information on this? I doubt it. That's the nagging question. Where is Daniel Morley now? Has he been arrested and charged or institutionalized anywhere? Oh, so Daniel Morley was arrested in, uh, on June 9th, 2013. Uh, he was never formally arraigned. They dropped the charges, but he was moved mysteriously from one mental institution to another. It's completely unclear. And one of the emails I got when the book was published was, um, hey, who paid for Daniel Morley to be in a mental institution for for two years, because there's not a insurance company on the planet that was going to pay for that kind of inpatient treatment. And the answer is still unclear. What we do know is that he was released from an inpatient facility in June of 2015, one month after Joe Garzanayev was sentenced to that. And now he drives, a, he has a guy who beat up his own mother, and he got a state job with the state of Massachusetts driving a van for the elderly. No way. For the ride. They now crossed it, so he doesn't even have a quarry. He has no rap sheet whatsoever. This is uh, just And crazy. when I ask the DAY, they tell me to ask the FBI, and the FBI is not talking. Where can people get the details of this article and the book talking about this? So you can, the book is called Maximum Harm. It's available anywhere on Amazon, any bookstore. Um, you can go to my website, Michelle with one L. Uh, right now, it's the cover of Newsweek, so if you're out and about and you see a Newsweek at a newsstand, which is rare, a newsstand is rare, but you can also get it at Newsweek.com. I encourage everyone to check it out. It's a great story. And Michelle, we're going to, I say this all the time because we have such fascinating conversations with people. We are definitely going to have it back on. Uh, you're my type of person. I can tell you that right now. You're thorough. You go for not lighthearted material and you don't you don't pull any punches and when you write you're very you're very direct you don't do innuendo it's like you come right out with here's the facts draw your own conclusions which is a rarity nowadays and and i think you know facts are very stubborn things and 
you know, sometimes someone has to speak to these facts and present them. And it's uh, it, uh, apparently everybody else is willing to look at this Boston Marathon investigation and say case closed. But to me, it's not enough. You have a dead cop. Dick Donahue was forced to retire from the draw because of his injuries suffered in the shootout between the Zanai brothers uh, on April 18th into the 19th. So you have one dead cop. You have one cop who almost died. He literally was dead for 40 minutes, and they brought him back to life. But it killed his career. And we should be asking questions about what really happened the night that John Collier was assassinated. Absolutely. And if you do talk with Dick, please tell him we send our regards, and we'll definitely talk to you again in the future. Well, thank you very much for having me. You're quite welcome. That's Michelle McPhee. Check out her website, Michelle, with one L, McPhee, M-C-P-H-E-E, dot com. And be sure to check out her article on Newsweek. When you have a chance, be sure to go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, and download our free mobile app. We have a version for your Android and iPhone devices. It's 100% free. Get it at lawenforcementtoday.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook. It's very easy to find. Just do a Facebook search for Law Enforcement Today. We're on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, the whole nine yards. Get all the details on our website, lawenforcementtoday.com. Had a great time with you today. And remember, if you want to be a guest on an upcoming show, the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show, contact us. We can accommodate you from anywhere. Just go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com. Send us the information. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. On behalf of everyone associated with law enforcement today, I'm John J. Wiley. Till next time, see ya.